0: Well, welcome to Crosstown. Great to see all of you today. We're in the middle of Uncommon, and, and we've been learning a lot of things about Uncommon. If you're kind of not with us, it's a, an immersive study that we're doing, not only through a devotional that we wrote here at the church, through small groups, but through the sermon series. So we're kind of just all getting into this Uncommon. And what that is about is discovering that God didn't call you just to be saved, but there's something about God, something about the nature of heaven, something in the nature of truth and that, that is uncommon, that we're not just saved, but rather that we're called to something more than that, that we are called to have uncommon compassion, uncommon character, and uncommon courage in life. And, and that affects marriages, and that affects our, our raising of our children, that affects our culture, that affects how you date. I mean, it affects all that stuff we're being called to that. And so we've been challenged to live uncommon. And Peter said it this way, therefore, prepare your minds for action. That means we got to do some work and begin to think about what, how do we need to be thinking about this uncommon life? Now, welcome to Crosstown. And if you're here at Crosstown, you haven't figured us out yet. Let me just tell you what, how it works. God uses churches in a lot of different ways. There are a lot of great Uh, churches in this city. I mean, there there are some that I would go to that I would be totally happy about going to. God uses them in different ways, just like he uses people in different ways. There, There are some churches that are, it's kind of like where you and your saved family go, and you kind of get on a track of, you know, being saved and then growing up in your relationship with Christ. When you're in a church like that, which is awesome, is that Ten, everybody there tends to already be the saved, sanctified and, and going there. So it tends to be more of likes there. Everybody there has kind of got some basic premises that they've already agreed on, certain tenets and certain theology that they agree on in order to be there and they all ride together. That's phenomenal. There are, there's a time to go to a church like that. Crosstown is not that church. Um, we are the church that God has raised up for the purpose of challenging uh, social mores for um, asking you the hard questions about what you believe, why you believe things, to challenge what you don't believe. And so it gets messy here. I mean, it, it really does. And, and we also have a little bit bigger margins so that you can be totally whacked at it, like me and be across town and, and it's gonna be okay. And some people will get nervous about that, but it's like, so when I'm talking today, It's going to be challenging. It's it's gonna challenge you to think differently. And I'm not just going to suppose that all of us are in agreement about stuff. And so we're gonna get really into it, which means I'm going to create tension. Um, As we talk, we're gonna create tension, but you're smart and you're truth uh, purveyors. You are after um, getting to the truth of life. And so I'm just gonna encourage you over the next 30 minutes then I, there's gonna be some tension created, but we're gonna be okay. And um, you're gonna walk out of here and you're gonna be like, well, um, I have to think differently. And that's what Peter is telling us. Prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, set your hope completely on. And, and, but if a lot of us don't know what we're talking about there, what are we talking about setting our hope on the grace of God? So we're gonna to need to think differently. So last week we talked about the word holy. Boy, that word's been messed up. And it it means a couple different things. I I could teach on this a couple different things. But we were taught last week that it is the welcome of God into community and that God through Christ and through Christ alone declares that we are holy. And I started naming configurations of lifestyle that... That might've made you nervous, but there's gotta be a point when God welcomes us into relationship with him and says, you're safe right where you are, just as messed up as you are. And whether we're we're in agreement about it or not, it's not the point. The point is that in Christ, you and I, right as we are, are declared holy by God. And then also God brings us into this place of living holy, where we begin to have God thoughts. We begin to arrange our spaces of relationship with the mind of God. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today. It is God who enables us and qualifies us for this challenge. I love this quote by Martin Luther King. It's just absolutely amazing. He said, it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to pill a." ought to lift himself by his bootstraps. And I really believe that it would be cruel for God to say, you need to be holy if he didn't first qualify us with holiness. And the scripture is replete with the idea that is echoed in Hebrews 10.10. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It doesn't say we have been made holy when we drink less, when we cuss less, when we steal less. You know, God doesn't say, listen, you need to pull yourself up and get your act together and pull yourself up by your bootstraps when none of us have boots. But God declares us through Christ to be holy. That's how amazing grace is. And that's where we are today. But then we're going to see that God is going to call us to be holy as he is holy. It's, it's kind of like the concept of the president. We now have a Democrat uh, president and we had a Republican president. And I think over the last eight years, we've gotten a pretty good medley of, um, pres- uh, of presidents. And so I think we can, this isn't a political commentary. This is just an observational one. Um, our presidents are endowed with the rights of, and honors of being the president of the United States. You know, that's what they they get. They are declared the president and therefore they get to move in spaces and that you and I don't get to move in. Get to move into conversations that you and I, they have privileges that you and I don't have. But there's a difference between this idea of being the president and living presidentially. That comes down to the personal character of the person in the position. That somebody can have all the rights and all the uh I've been given the rights of being the president of the United States, but how they walk out that position is totally up to them. And so there's a difference between being the president of the United States and living presidentially. This is exactly what's going on with God and with us, is that he has declared us through Christ as holy, forgiven, saved, righteous, all these incredible words that are like really bigger than us. You know, it's like, I can't even believe that God would say something. Chosen, called, beloved, all these things that are counterintuitive to how we feel about ourselves and particularly about our behavior. But God declares over us in Christ, you are holy. And now we're going to see today that in that place of being called holy, that he's going to call us to be presidential, to live holy, to now use our position to begin to walk out this concept of God. Jesus was marveled at, and of course he was marveled at. I mean, turning water into wine, walking on water, feeding 5,000, really cool stuff, and that would get you a lot of attention. Um, he also knew a lot of stuff. He talked about things that people didn't know about, and, and he had a rich knowledge of, of things, particularly of the scriptures and what God was doing. But I always found it interesting that this this commentary about the life of Jesus was said because it really impacted me as a man, as a person and how I live my life, Matthew 7, 28. And when Jesus finished talking to the crowd, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as one of their scribes. It's like like they were like stunned. It's like, well, he was stunned, why? Because he told them how to fly an airplane? Or how to build one? No. He told them how to construct an iPhone? No. Uh, talked to them about uh, calculus? No. He communicated to them the word of God, which they already had, that their scribes had already had. But it's said that he taught them as one with authority. And my observation of this concept of authority is what happens when a human being holds a certain idea in theory ends in speech and then lives it out in practice, is that they become authoritative. And that Jesus had a knowledge of things of God, but the way that he lived it out, that the continuity of those two things together produced this, this, call it an unction, call it a force or a power of person called authority. I mean, you got people that you talk to about all kinds of things. You know, we can talk about football all day long and somebody comes in and is like, yeah, you know, Jalen Hurts is the best quarterback in the NFL. I mean, everybody thinks their quarterback is supposed to be the MVP of the, of the uh, season this year, right? I mean, everybody's like, can make an argument. But you know, most people you talk to are schmucks. You know, they, they, they talk to you, they're talking about sports and you're kind of like, yeah, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, let's say uh, Bill Belichick walks in the room. And he makes a statement about what is, or Dabo Sweeney or some, some great coach, and, and then all of a sudden you're, you know you realize that there's a little bit closer between an understanding of the, the knowledge and the experience. And what that feeling you get is called authority. That's what God is trying to create in us. as moms, as dads, as as friends and in life, he is trying to bring this continuity between what we are declared and how we live our lives. There are some people that can talk to you about Jesus all day long and you're like, yada, yada, yada. I mean, it's like, I really don't wanna hear it. But then another person can talk to you about faith and there's something about their life that matches something about their message and it produces this authority. When I was thinking about this, I always I love uh, earth science and and stuff like that, and mechanics and all. Um, there's a the thing this word called discontinuity is a vibration that is that causes things to rattle apart. It's repeated breaks in the consistency of of something that produces vibrations. You experience this most in your car. You're driving your car. You're doing pretty good at 45 law-abiding citizen, you get up there about 65, you join my, my crowd of people, we're over 65, and then all of a sudden you begin to notice and, and, and it starts to vibrate. And then usually about, if it disappears at about 70, then we could probably hone that you probably got a problem with uh, balance of your tires. But it's interesting is that you can have an imbalanced tire like one of those lead things fell off the inside of your wheel and it causes a little shake that you feel. And then it goes all the way up. It transfers up the steering column into your steering wheel. But in my car, what happens is it takes one more step. And the right passenger seat starts going. And it's like, whoa. And you're looking over and it's like, I got a problem with my seat. you know. And it's like, you don't have a problem with your seat. You don't even have a problem with your steering wheel. You have a problem with a weight on the right front tire that's vibrating. That kind of discontinuity begins to transfer into the, the chassis of the vehicle and begins to affect your driving pattern. That's what happens in parenting. When a dad espouses one philosophical view about God, but lives a totally different view. Well, you kids need to go to church with your mom. Let me just tell you, when they turn 17, you kids don't need to drink. You know, but pops back there sucking back, you know, um, uh, butt light like Dodge gilling, And it's like uh, just going crazy. And it's like, well, you talk to me about God, but this is the life that you live. And what does that produce? It creates a vibration and it creates a dis- this con- discontinuity. And things begin to fall apart. Marriages fall apart. Societies fall apart. And what God wants to do is to bring a continuity between what he declares us and what we're living out in our lives to create to, to remove the unhealthy harmonics of life. This is how you get your kids to follow you. Matter of fact, as, since I'm a slightly older man, not totally there yet, but I can see it from here. You know, it's, I'm a, legacy is a really important thing about leaving your legacy. Well, they say that your legacy is not in your children. Your legacy is in your grandchildren because that's where you find out what your kids bought about you and then decided to export it into their own children. See, your kids might've done what you did because they lived in your house, but you find out whether or not they really bought into it and whether or not they teach it to their kids. And what God wants to create is to create this continuity of thought, of compassion, uncommon compassion, uncommon character, uncommon courage in our lives. And he wants us to be able to pass it on. And he wants to uh, reduce the shakes in your marriage. You know, you and your wife, see, that's why some of you are addicted to taking trips because you think you have a hard time living together, so you got to take a trip. You got to go to the Bahamas or, or I'm going to start to sound ridiculous because I don't travel a lot. But you think you have to take a trip every six months. Why? It's because we got to get rid of the shakes out of our marriage. We got to kind of go out on a beach and just enjoy and drink some margaritas. And it's like, that's not how you get the shakes out of a marriage. When you get home... Your marriage is gonna get up to 65 again. You're gonna start talking about finances. You're gonna start talking about sex. You're gonna start talking about your conversation that you had, and all of a sudden, the steel mill's gonna start doing a little bit of this. Discontinuity in your own personal life that begins to affect other things. Likewise, continuity with the things of God, all of a sudden, you begin to see things heal. It's absolutely amazing. So God is calling us to live on common character. Character is big. Character, and here's how I best understand it. Character is like a mini culture within you. It's like you got a little city and, in, inside of you. And in your little city, you have personal uh, cultural values, um, passions, ethics, morals, and, and modalities of relationships. How you interact with people. You got them all right here. You got your own little mini city inside of you. Um, and, and this little culture. It led me to think this, that there is no culture that has risen in human history that wasn't first formed in the heart and character of a person. Nazi Germany doesn't just happen. Racism doesn't just happen. A compassionate culture doesn't just happen. Good families don't just happen. Awesome marriages don't just happen, bad marriages don't just happen. They are the emergence of a mini culture being set into a larger scene, into a larger setting. So no culture ever emerged on this planet that didn't first find its home in the heart and the character of a human being. So I'm gonna ask you this question. What is your culture? What is your mini culture? Not what's wrong with your spouse. They got their own little mini culture. What about, you, what about your mini culture? What's going on inside of you? What are your values? What are your ethics? What are your passions? What's your modalities of relationship that you have? Well, the common structure of character comes from society, family experiences, um, from your behavioral presuppositions. These are things that are, or are predispositions. So ways that you think and you've had in your mind from your pop or your mom, from society maybe because uh, there's a certain cultural way that you you act within yourself because you're male or female or because you're white or because you're black but there's a how we behave and interact as people we kind of import that from culture we we normally do this but for the christian we are called to an uncommon character of god See, this, this is a big difference. Now I'm gonna, I'm telling you, it really is going to get good in here. I mean like really good. And it's gonna get really smart in here, okay? But this is gonna produce tension in you. I'm just wanting to let you know. But I would be unkind and cruel if I didn't tell you what you needed to know about, about God and about being one of his kids. When it comes to culture and and character, God's culture is antecedent. What I do, it's a personal trick that I do with myself, is when I wanna learn a concept that I might've already been familiar with, but I wanna open myself up to knowing it in a new way, I will pick a new word. And I picked the word antecedent on this one. God's culture is antecedent. That means it precedes everything. It precedes everything my birth, it precedes my gender, it, uh, it precedes my sexuality, it precedes my race, my societal and political position. That God's ethos, his character, his mini like he's got a mini, mini culture, but, but his culture, his personal ethos is antecedent. And God is calling us to live his antecedent culture. That means it's going to challenge your mini little city. And that we are called to walk like Christ. And I know you're like, well, this is stupid, man. This is 2021. Um, But let me just tell you another place where you use this concept of antecedents. Our constitutional government was not just something that somebody came with at the time of the Revolutionary War. It wasn't like, you know, they were like a bunch of guys got together and it's like, okay, We've decided we're not gonna be English any longer and we're not gonna be French. And so let's crack some eggs and find out what we come up with. And they all of a sudden came up with the Constitution. That's not how it worked at all. Before our antecedent to the Constitution, there was the Magna Carta, the charters of the Virginia Company of London, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, These were all antecedent ideas. I'm telling you, they didn't just make it up. They started borrowing ideas that had been proven before and started importing antecedent ideas. You say, well, where did they come from? Well, they came from antecedent ideas from concepts of common law, civil law, case law, canon law, codification of law, and precedence. So we just didn't wake up American or constitutional, there was this idea that there was something antecedent and we brought it in. For the Christian, and it may not be for you, but for the Christian, God's ethos is always antecedent. It's already defined, it is already what it is. And God is not inviting you to rewrite it, okay? Your civil liberties do not extend heavenward. They may extend horizontally, but we are not invited to change the ethos of God. We are in Christ called to be like Jesus. We are called to import the antecedent culture of the ethos of God. I told you, wouldn't this be smart? You're not gonna accuse us of being a stupid church. But I'm creating this tension in you. Well, the word of God's creating this tension. It's like, we're at the point now, we all like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We all love the fact that, yeah, you can be living with your boyfriend and still be declared holy by the mercy and love of God. We all love the fact that you can be living in a homosexual relationship and be a child of God, and that's okay. We're all loving the fact that we can drink too many Tom Collinses on Friday night and still be a child of God. We all love the fact that we can backstab and gossip against each other, and still be called the child of God. But now God is saying, cool, now that you're the president, let's start acting presidential. It's like, okay, how do I do that? Now it's time for us to import the divine ethos, the antecedent character of God. You know why it's so important? And I think it's beautiful. I mean, it's like brilliant. I can't believe God thought of this. It was like, it's so brilliant because if you can get a culture to do the antecedent character of God, you can reboot the culture. It's amazing. It's like, well, how do we get the world back on course? Well, you have to go to an antecedent culture where, see, that's why we don't need to make America great again. You really want to go back to the 1950s? That's our best. I was born there. (laughs) (laughs) Ta-da. How are we doing now? No, we wanna go someplace where you can reboot your life beyond your divorce, beyond your addiction, beyond your civil liberties, beyond all that. It's like, well, where do we go? Uh, We go to God, we go because his ethos is antecedent because his forever never changes, his good never changes, his true never changes, his compassionate never changes, his righteousness never changes. So for the Christian, God's character determines how all the other definitions and resources are used. This is where the rubber meets the road. And maybe right now you're, you're stealing, stealing willows doing one of these. It's like, oh, I'm starting to shake and my passenger's starting to do a little bit of this. This is where we are if we're gonna be uncommon. This is going to be a big challenge to the way that you're being told to think. Because here's the world status quo. You're being told that your character is defined by whatever you want it to be. You get to pick your values and your definitions. That's what you're being told. The metric that you use for your mini-culture right now, the most predominant, intellectual, enlightened metric for determining your personal mini-culture is whether or not it makes you feel good or not. And then in turn, anybody else's ethos that tells you you're wrong is oppressive and patriarchal and needs to be torn down. Well, that won't stop with just white guys. You'll have to tear God down too, okay? Because any of the ideas that I have about Christianity, I didn't make them up. I'm not that smart. God's ethos is antecedent. And I don't agree with everything God says. And it's like, guy, I've been a Christian a long time. I still have a problem. (laughs) I won't tell you what I have a problem with Because I don't want you to, I I do have a problem with God on some issues, and I don't like the way He set up certain things. And but I do them anyway. Why? It's because, okay, I'm called to be like Christ, not like me. I'm called to be like Christ, not not like some movie star or some sports athlete. I'm called to be like Christ, not to be called an American. I'm called to be antecedent to all those ideas. So let me pause for a second because this is where you thought that was kind of rough when you get to this part because we have, to, we have to have this conversation. It is the 500 pound gorilla in the room or elephant or whatever mammalian or whatever, that, whatever they are. It is the big thing that we're gonna, we're gonna have to go through. And as I go through this, because this is gonna be very challenging, you're, I'm using the editorial you. So I'm not like you over there. I'm just using the editorial you. So so if you get offended, don't get wicked offended, but I need to do this because you will cite the problem from this point on and anything I will say in this service or any church service that you should go to, you will have a problem with the Bible. I am willing to say from my years of talking to people who have problems with the Bible, it is not the result of scholasticism that they have arrived at that that standpoint. It's really a mimicking or a meme that we culturally pass on. Yeah, that's don't believe because I don't believe in the Bible. It's like, okay, really, could let's, let's sit down and talk about why? Well, I I, I wrote down some of the sit downs that I have heard objectionally against the Bible, so. We got to go through this. Well, the Bible is written by men. And I'm not talking about men, Matt. I'm talking about males. That's a big argument today. So let me just ask you from a rational standpoint. When you got home and you had that really bad cough and you got that growth on your back and you got that order of amoxicillin and and you're about to take it and you look down and it says, Dr. Chris McClain on it. Do you say no man is going to give me a solution for my life? You don't want to know that the top five researchers discovering penicillin were all dudes. I'm sure there was a woman in there someplace, okay? But the five scientists that were involved were all dudes. But do you reject penicillin because it was discovered in that fashion? How about this? Have you ever rejected the Bill of Rights because it was written mostly by men. Oh, no. Um, have you ever stopped when you're like, kind of like you're outside working in the yard and, and you're, you know, you know, your veins just squirt and you run into the, into the uh, emergency room. And you're like, oh my gosh. And you know, and it's squirting, your blood's dropping out. And all of a sudden they bring out doctor so-and-so and it's a dude. Do you ever say, could you give me somebody else? I just can't have a dude work on my hand. No, you don't. So let's just be honest about this. Um, did you ever dis- figure like you couldn't watch The Notebook because it was written by Nicholas Sparks, a dude? Did you ever reject the works of 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 uh, uh, the work of Romeo and Juliet because it was written by Shakespeare? I mean, let's just be honest these cliche answers on why we don't believe in the Bible, you don't consistently buy those anywhere else in your life. So let's take that one and move it aside. Here's the next one. It's antiquated and it's outdated. Well, first of all, that would be built upon the premise that you think we're standing on moral high ground now than they were back in Bible times. So that would assume that, oh yeah, we should be all done with adultery and murder and racism and envy and jealousy and lying because we don't need the Bible anymore because we're standing in such high ground. So that would be assuming that something is antiquated because you've got something better. It would be like walking into the idea of mathematics and the times table. And just because the times table is thousands of years old, we're not gonna use it anymore. Like, I don't know about you. I would not give up on the times table particularly at tax time, okay? Then here's the kicker. I don't believe it is inspired by God. And again, this is good. This is, you need this conversation. First of all, I gotta ask you the question. Do you believe anything can be inspired by God? Because you need to find out whether or not you're a materialist. Because it doesn't matter if the Bible is inspired by God. You don't think anything can be inspired by God. So please do your honest homework with yourself Because I can tell you all day long, turn the other cheek. I can tell you all day long, give, it's better to give than to receive. But if you don't, if you're a materialist, why would you even listen to this? But so you gotta ask yourself, is there? And if there is something that God could inspire, what is your test by which measuring that? I wanna know what you, your system, how do you analyze? things. And when you hear something smart, something good, and you test it, and I want to hear your methodological approach to ascertaining whether or not something is, most of us have done none of that. See, I've run the math on the book of Daniel. I mean, it's like, how does Daniel predict the rise of the the Roman, Greek, you know, uh, Persian empires and all this stuff years in advance, and it happens, click, 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 click. How is there 65 prophecies predicting things Jesus would say and do in his lifetime, and they all happen? Click, 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 click. Do the math on it. To me, but I'm gonna ask you, have you done the math on it? Most of us aren't, let's be honest. But let's do this, and you can tweet this out, local pastor says Bible's not inspired. Um, But you can do that. But let's pretend, or we don't have to pretend, Let's say that it is not inspired and, but yet it is the oldest and most comprehensive record of human behavior over the past 5,000 years. Because everybody's in agreement on that. Let's pretend it is just the most ancient document and collection uh, chronicling of the all too human behavior of mankind that we are still seeing lived out today. We don't even have to pretend it is without a doubt the greatest chronicle of human behavior, complete with motives, causes, successes, failures, marriages, families, countries, parenting, justice, violence, oppression, racism, liberation, and redemption. So my point is this, if you reject it as the study of the divinities, it remains the greatest source for the humanities, bar none. There is no other document in human history that chronicles human. So I can, even if it's not inspired, I can can look at David and Bathsheba. I I can figure out what's going on in that story. You know, I can see how David got there. He was walking on his roof, looking over into another one. It's like human behavior. We call it porn today. A little more, we got better plastics, but that's all, it's the same thing. Human behavior right there. So, How to succeed, how to forgive, how to screw up your family, how to have an incredible family, right there. But we're just gonna ignore that? So don't take my word for it as an enthusiastic Christian. Don't take my word, So, and I didn't either. So I'm a member of a, a, a little thing that allows me to have access to an AI database. It's this hyper supercomputer somewhere out there that you get that talk to it and have and have conversations with. And so I logged in. It's, it's like you know, the next step in AI. And I asked it the question: what is the benefit of the Bible as a literary and historical document? Because I wanted to give you a pure objective computer response about the Bible. All right? Something maybe that's a little smarter than us, or at least it's got a compilation of wisdom. Here is the top nine responses. I didn't give you the 10th because the 10th sounded too Christian. So I actually took it and threw it aside. AI said this, the Bible is spiritual guidance and moral instruction. Two, encouragement and comfort through difficult times. Three, insights into the nature of God and humanity. Four, historical record of early civilizations and cultures. Five, understanding of religious and philosophical thought. Six, the framework for understanding the world and the purpose of human existence. Seven, the inspiration for art, literature, and music. Eight, the preservation of culture and heritage and traditions. And nine, the basis for community values and ethical principles. Without it even being inspired, You know what we call that in the world of smart thinking scientific people? A database, analytics. Coaches in football right now are using the IBM Watson to determine they've run the ball halfway down the field. Should they kick a field goal or not? They run it through the analytics. Well, 88% of the time when the field goal kicker does this, when the wind does this, yes, kick or not, go for it on fourth down. Analytics are a powerful thing. And the analytics of AI says that the Bible is a powerful document, historical record of humanity that brings about the the composure of community and ethical values. What do you got? What do you got that beats that? I'll tell you what you got. You got TikTok being run by the Chinese government and enjoyed by every 15 year old in the world or you're watching Instagram to get what is important to the world. Really? You're gonna reject 6,000 years of human history and human behavior, successes and failures? Forget if it's divine or not, because you're going to go with your gut. You're going to say, I did, again, editorial you, not you, not none of you, but it, just you are going to say that you, with your first time through planet Earth, because you're all your, on your first ride through here, You believe you have more collective wisdom and knowledge for raising children, running your own life, and dealing with your own dysfunctions than 6,000 years of recorded human history. Somebody in the room is psychotic. (laughs) Seriously. I'm not crazy for believing in God. You can't call me crazy for believing in God because you think you are. You think you're antecedent. To even human wisdom. I'm trying to make a rational, non-circular, non-using the Bible to defend itself argument that believing in God, importing the wisdom of God is exactly what your life needs right now. So what do you have that's better? Personal and cultural character are not defined by your single moment. No matter what Civil liberties tell you, you're not that big. Isaiah told us, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Golly, it's just absolutely amazing. But God's like, you really need to be careful. If you really think that your feelings and your opinion are the city of culture that needs to be exported to the world around you. This kind of talking is what urged Paul in Romans 12:1. This is the therefore. And if you're not a Christian, this is, this is not for you. The therefore is, is, he just talked to Christians, he just talked to, to his crowd just like I just talked to you. And so he says, therefore, I urge you brothers and sisters in the view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's like, since you just heard this argument, this rational presentation, there is a therefore. And you can say, well, you come here to Cross Town because you like the music. I'm glad you do. You come to Crosstown because for a few moments you feel good about life and we're glad you feel that. But don't you think that we're just running on air here. We are running on the antecedent mind of God. Don't you think for a second that I have a great, amazing, staggeringly beautiful 35 year marriage just because I'm a better guy and she's a better woman. I've already had one divorce. I know how to screw up a marriage. I imported an antecedent idea in the second marriage. Last thing I needed to do was to carry my logic further any longer. And that challenged me about stuff. God's word challenged me about, you don't end up with great families, great relationships just by accident. God uses his word and you hate this, I know it but he uses his principles, his ethics, his commandments, his law, why? To create a biosphere, an ethos around us. That's why when you come to Crosstown, you may ask me, what's your stand on this? What's Crosstown's stand on this? And do I even agree with Crosstown's stand as his pastor? Do I agree with Crosstown's stand? No, I don't like Crosstown stand on stuff. Well, then whose stand is it? It's antecedent, it. Well, where'd you get it from? Uh, well, for you, it may be, well, this 6,000 year database of proven human history, succeeding and failing, I pulled it from there. You'd be like, wow, you got 6,000 6, years of, let me, let me just say this to you. You're not invited to change the character of God. That's, that's called an engraven image. You're not allowed to go there. Um, You're invited to allow heaven to come to earth, but you are not invited to bring your earth to heaven. And besides, let me be the pragmatist. You don't have enough time to start from scratch. You don't have enough time. You're gonna be here about 75 years. Most of us, 75 years. That's what the, the numbers say. You don't have enough time to figure out ethics. You don't have time to write your own laws. You don't have uh, enough time to make your own government, figure out everything about life and humanity, trial and test it, then correct it, all while dating, marrying, working, giving birth, raising kids and facing the normal hardships of life. You know, nobody here has enough time on earth to rethink sexuality or the biology of sexuality. And it's like, no, no, I get permission to change everything. And I'm not just focusing on that subject, I'm talking about every subject. Husbands, you're still called to love your wife and die for her. Yeah, I don't agree with that. There ain't a guy here that does, duh. But that's the antecedent wisdom of God. Wives. You're supposed to honor your husband. And I know, that I know, <laughs> you ladies are trying to keep from smiling, but you know, yeah, there you go. That's the joy I wanted to see. You You know, honoring your husband, is, that's one tough, that's a gig right there. That's a tough gig, you know? But you're called to do it. You're called to turn the other cheek. There isn't one person in this room that has turned the cheek DNA in them. Not one person in here. You're, turn, you're told to present your life a living sacrifice unto God. Do you think I like that? I'll tell you what I don't like just for fun and then we'll close. I, what I, I don't like monogamy. I want to be honest with you guys. Conceptually, and it's like that. So, so I Google, so I ask my AI buddy What are the benefits of a long-term monogamous relationship? And you should see, I'll share it with you in another sermon. Astounding. This computer that's never gonna have a girlfriend has figured out the benefits of monogamy. Why? Because it's a proven database. So, this is our cross. When Jesus turned around and everybody was following him because they, he was giving them bread and he was healing him, he, kind of, he got to that point. He was like, yeah, it was good bread, wasn't it? Yeah, it was good healing. Yeah, doing pretty good right there with that leg. Yeah, that's pretty good. Then guess what? when he turned around, and he says, now it's time for you to pick up your cross and to follow me. This is, your, this is that moment. This is where you present yourself a living sacrifice unto God. It's like, not my ideas, but your ideas. And I know I'm, I'm about to lose some of you. I'm willing to risk it, because I don't want you to live in a lie. Telling somebody they're something when they're not really something is not compassion. It's narcissistic lying. And God is willing to offend us by saying I, that he is God and we are not, and to walk in my ways. I mean, he's, and that's offensive to me. But I have found, because I believe the document is inspired, because when Jesus said the things that he said on the cross that were already said in the book of Psalms, when none of his bones were broken, which was already declared in the Psalms, when it said that he would be given wine while he was dying, that was already spoken in Jeremiah, when he was, when he they said, physician, heal yourself, which was already spoken in Isaiah or some other place. When all the math began to add up and the improbability added up, all of a sudden I realized he knows life and I need to lose mine to gain his. So this is where we are. As we present you communion, this is a big step. Paul, like I did last week, had told his church, he said, hey, I want you to know you're saints, you're blessed, you're chosen, you're holy, you're children of God, you're redeemed, you're beloved, you're forgiven, you're sealed into the inheritance of God, you've been made anew, you're no longer strangers, but you're now citizens of heaven, you are God's household, you are the family of God. I did that last week. And that's what Paul does in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And then in chapter 4, he says, therefore... prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. God's given us this chosenness, this presidential position, and then wants us to walk out presidentially. Why? Because it makes him look good? Yeah, it does. It makes the message believable. It makes dads believable, moms believable, husbands believable, credible. But here's the crazy thing. It brings life. It makes marriage better. It makes being just you better. It makes being a dad awesome. I mean, it just, it changes everything. The world can fly balloons over my head all day long, but as for me and my house, we're gonna serve God. And we have, we have begun to reap the incredible benefit of following after the Lord. But you're going to have to be willing to do that. To choose God. Not just salvation, but his ethos. And to allow that ethos to get in you. Fathers, we come today and you offer us, Jesus, in the bread, in the cup, in the, the sacrament we call communion. You are once again showing us that the way life changes is by getting God into us. Getting God into us. Not us into God. So I thank you, Lord, for this incredible group of people. I know we didn't like everything that was said, but faithful are the wounds of a friend are the kisses of an enemy. (laughs) It's one of those crazy, brilliant things out of your word that we all know is true. So Father, you may have offended us today, but not to crush us. Maybe to break us. To bring about healing in us. You're not looking to destroy us. You're looking to make us anew antecedently new, new like you, uncommon compassion, uncommon character, uncommon courage. So today we surrender and we welcome you in.